0: We're going to have our second Bible reading now from Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 to 30. And if you have one of the church Bibles, uh, that some of the ch- in some of the church Bibles, that's on page 925. So Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 to 30. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet, nine, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisers, treasurers, judges, magistrates and all the other provincial officers to come to the dedication of the image that he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisers, treasurers, judges, magistrates and all the other provincial officers assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach and and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent that the and the furnace so hot that the flames of fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisers, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, O King. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego came out of the fire and the satraps, prefects, governors and royal advisers crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies. Nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god "'except their own God. "'Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language "'who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego Abednego, "'be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, "'for no other God can save in this way. "'Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego "'in the province of Babylon.'" This is God's word. Good morning. It's a
1: delight to be with you again. Uh, I'm very grateful uh, to Chris and John uh, for their warm welcome and kind invitation to be with you this morning. Uh, You might like to turn with me, please, to the third chapter of the book of the prophet Daniel. As we come to uh, read the scriptures together, uh, let's seek the Lord's help as we try to understand it and apply it to ourselves. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, we thank you that you are the true and living God uh, who discloses yourself to us in words. We thank you for the words that you have given us uh, through the Spirit that are permanently uh, contained in the Scriptures. And We pray that that which the Spirit has given us, uh, he may also interpret to us this morning. Uh, so that we, in turn, may live faithful lives like these Jewish men of which we read in Daniel 3. Help us uh, to stand firm in our faith in increasingly uncertain times and help us at all times, Father, to bear a good witness. We ask you for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, When Jesus commands a man to follow him, he bids him come and die. Uh, Those famous words were once uttered by a a German Lutheran theologian, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who actually uh, sealed the truth of those words when he was executed in the Flossenberg concentration camp uh, at the hands of Adolf Hitler. Uh, In 1976... Uh, Yanani Luwum, who was the Archbishop of Kampala and uh, was the chief uh, Anglican official in Uganda, uh, was shot in the head at point blank range by Idi Amin, uh, the Ugandan tyrant. Uh, he refused to comply with him in a number of his requests on the grounds of conscience, and he was shot. And Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah found Bonhoeffer's words uh, just as true as Luum had found them so many years later. Because here in Babylon around the year 600 BC, uh, these three Jewish believers learned for the first time what it meant to come and die for being obedient to God. Perhaps they'd discovered that principle Uh, many times beforehand, but this seems to have been uh, the river that they had to cross on that particular occasion. How did it come about? Well, they were faced with an issue that confronts you and me. Uh, It's the issue of, will I live under the rule of God and who will hold my conscience captive? Under whose authority, ultimate authority, will I live, and whom will I serve? Who will determine my thoughts? I wonder if you've given you know, significant consideration to that question, because the answer to it has momentous consequences. It certainly did in their case. Now, we need to be certain about this, uh, that one of the great issues in life is the issue of power and control. Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, who is no friend, I suppose, to Christians, a famous atheist philosopher of the late 19th century, uh, said this about a hundred years ago, man's desire to control his own destiny and to impose his will on others is the most basic human motivation. Now, while we may not agree with many of his atheistic views I think it's easy to find some common ground with him in his assessment of human nature. Uh, Paul Turnier, uh, uh, a Swiss uh, Christian psychiatrist, says something similar. He says, We are moved without knowing it by an imperious will to power, and this will to power will tolerate no rivals. Thankfully, that power has been subdued in Christian hearts, or at least we pray it has, but it's often expressed to the full in non-Christian ones. Now, both Nietzsche and Tornia have put their finger, I think, on a fundamental desire that touches us all. Uh, the desire to have our control and to express our will and have our way. It's a desire as old as the Fall. Uh, John Milton, the English poet, reminds us in his work paradise lost, that this was the primal sin of Satan. He concluded in his own twisted way that it was better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. And that's where the lust for power and control will lead us. And so the question that you and I have to ask ourselves as Christians as we look at this ancient historical episode is how does this issue that confronted these three men on that momentous occasion uh, impact on your life and mine today? Under whose will will we live? Under whose control do you want to be? Because this third chapter of Daniel gives us two very dramatic snapshots of this principle at work in the hearts of us all. First we have the picture of a man who is desperate to express his control and his authority over the whole of the state of Babylon and indeed of his empire which was far larger. And I'm referring of course to Nebuchadnezzar. And the other shot is of these three men, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, or as they were called in Persian, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're the men who had heard God's summons in the gospel that the kingdom of God had come upon them. Uh, They realized afresh that God was sovereign and that He commanded our wills. They realized that there was no higher will than God. And so for them, on that particular occasion, when they were confronted with this issue, they realised that there was only one decision that they could make and only one action that was open to them. How about you? You know, we are living in increasingly uncertain times. There used not to be a time when doctors were in threat, as it were, of being dragged before you know, some tribunal, uh, a punitive one, uh, because they refused to refer somebody uh, to undertake a procedure that they had serious moral objections to. There was a time when clerks in legal offices were... Uh, in this case in Kentucky, in just a couple of months ago, uh, would never have been thrown into jail for refusing to sign wedding certificates for people of the same sex. There was a time when bakers could bake a cake without risk of being bankrupted for refusal to bake a cake for a same-sex marriage. And there was a time when people had the right to let out their campsites to whomever they chose, as long as they basically acted consistently uh, with one's religious views. But those times are disappearing and we are now living in a different age. And so this particular instance that we have in the book of Daniel is highly significant for us today. You know, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah were men who yielded their heart to the Lord and in doing so, in a very difficult time, held out or hold out an example for us. Now let's look to to begin with at, at the crisis that came upon them we read in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, that King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide and set it up in the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisers, treasurers, judges, magistrates and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. Actually, in the Hebrew, the... Uh, The numbers are significant. Uh, It doesn't really appear that way in the English, but in the Hebrew it is. Uh, He made an image of gold 60 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up in the plain of Jura. Why did he do this? Well, we we know from the historical records uh, that he had a reign of over 40 years in Babylon and that he was immensely shrewd and resourceful. He never did anything without good reason. So, when we read of the creation of this enormous image, which must have consumed uh, a huge amount of resources, uh, we wonder why. Well, it seems, if we know the episode uh, that's recorded in chapter 2, that Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream, and in that dream he had a vision of a vast statue which had a head of gold, uh, shoulders and chest made of silver, uh, waist and thighs made of bronze, legs of iron and feet of clay. And this figure, according to the Holy Spirit, represented uh, the kingdoms of this world. Nebuchadnezzar was told that he represented the golden head of the statue. But as time went by, Each of those different parts of the statue, which represented different kingdoms, uh, would assume control. And control would ultimately pass from the golden head to the silver shoulders and chest, which represented Persia, then to Greece, then to Rome, and then to the kingdoms of this world. And he was threatened by the dream because it meant an end to his so-called everlasting kingdom, And this represents his attempt to overcome the certainty of this dream by creating a vast statue on the plains of Jura, which in Hebrew means fortress, uh, and was designed to symbolise his power. And and this was designed to ensure uh, the continuation of his kingdom forever. Now, I mentioned that it was made uh, 60 cubits high and Six cubits wide. Well, there's significance, I think, in that. Uh, The number six plays an important role in the Bible. Uh, The number six represents the number for man and it also represents uh, falling short of perfection, which is marked by number seven. In the 13th chapter of the book of Revelation, number six is associated with the beast or the Antichrist. And so, this image not only falls short of perfection, but it's essentially an attempt to deify man. It's an attempt on Nebuchadnezzar's part to state that his kingdom has messianic dimensions and powers. Something we're going through in the world at the moment. You know, there are many people who look to the state now rather than to God for the answer to all our issues, to provide us with salvation. The state will look after you from cradle to grave. It provides for all your needs. You don't need to look beyond God. It requires your complete allegiance in many places. So here we have a picture of man uh, rejecting God's plans for the world and asserting himself as the substitute for God. This is an exclamation that Nebuchadnezzar had no time left for God. True, in chapter 2, he confessed that God had sovereign rule over all the world. But not every confession is a true confession. And especially when they're made by politicians. It's the kind of humanistic claim that's made here. Uh, that John F. Kennedy once made when he said all man's problems have been created by man and can be solved by man. Thus, uh, this statue symbolises that in this world that Nebuchadnezzar was creating, there was no room for God. There was no room for true worship of God. There was no rule for God's rules. I should also add here that uh, it's often the case that the state wants to make religion serve its interests. Nebuchadnezzar was no fool. He could see how he could exploit the unifying influence of a common religion uh, to achieve his own political ambitions. And that has often been the way in the world. Uh, Those of you who follow current affairs in Russia will notice Vladimir Putin has been uh, constantly mixing with uh, the Roman, uh, Orthodox, oh, sorry, the Russian Orthodox Church. He realises that uh, if that religion uh, captures the hearts and minds of most of the people in uh, in Russia, uh, it becomes far easier to control the country if he has religion on side. That was one of the reasons, for example, why the state in England uh, are so uh, interested in controlling uh, state religion. It makes it so much easier uh, to control the population. Politicians love the idea of a single church. So the shadows of the beast in Revelation 13 are all over this picture and it serves as a warning to us of how religion can be used by politics, or politicians, to further their own ends. It's also a warning to us too about how uh, attempt, a government can attempt to compel uh, religion for its own purposes. Uh, I think it's worthwhile noticing uh, that in this great celebration, notice how all the resources of the state were poured into it uh, to create this fantastic impression in the minds of the population. It marshalled all its resources, uh, especially the arts, to do it. Notice the description we have it in in chapter three, verse five. Uh, there we read uh, that The Herald uh, proclaims, as soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the the lyre, the pipes and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be immediately thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Notice how enormous efforts were made here to create a form of worship and a propaganda that were vast and lavish and ornate. Notice how music was used. You know, those of you who have seen any of the old movie reels of what was taking place in Germany in the late 1930s and 1940s will know how the German filmmaker Lenny Refenstahl used art and music and film to support the great claims of National Socialism and the tyranny of Nazism. And notice how this state religion is often cruelly coercive. It's a monster. It begins to command its citizens in ways that go completely contrary to their own personal faith. You think this way or else... You do what every else, what everyone else is doing, or you go to jail. When the state legislates what is right and wrong, then it's your job to endorse it. When other people bow down, you bow down. You follow the state because the state is your God. And that's the way that religion that is endorsed by the state works. And the state is always delighted when people bow down and follow all its directions. And that's what everybody on the plain of Jura was doing except these three men. This was something that they could not do because God had commanded uh, the allegiance of their hearts. And so the music didn't sway them, nor did the propaganda. They stood erect. And I want to remind you of some haunting words that Martin Luther said in uh, the time of the Reformation. He said, in every day and in every age there will be an issue that the Church will face and that issue will change from age to age but it's the pressure point in each age where Christians will have to stand. Uh, In the first century, In the 2nd and 3rd century, it was on the issue of emperor worship. During the time of the Reformation, it was on internal matters within the church, like the Lord's Supper. People gave their lives uh, for making a confession on that basis. And now it may well be uh, that Christians are called uh, to make a sacrifice in one way or another, uh, because of their strong-held beliefs about right-to-life issues or marriage issues. It's already happening. You may say, well, it doesn't really matter, it's not affecting us here in Australia. It's certainly affecting people in the United Kingdom. It's certainly affecting people in the United States. And the extraordinary thing is that these men were loyal and faithful workers And they were some of the most capable administrators in the Babylonian government. They'd been faithful to the king. But Nebuchadnezzar was in a blind rage and he wanted absolute control over their consciences. Now, maybe it will be that we're not too far away from this kind of showdown in the West today. I don't know whether you realise it, but uh, you know there has been a slow and steady erosion of many of our freedoms, particularly freedoms as Christians. And it may well there may well come a day uh, where we will find that we ourselves, as principled and loyal subjects, but whose consciences are captive to Christ, will have to make a stand over some issue. It's strange, isn't how the world pays tribute to deeply held religious convictions. I mean, why bother with these three men? There must have been millions of people in the Babylonian kingdom. Does it make such a big deal over three people, particularly who are Jews? Well, the answer is that it did. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't worried about destroying their careers uh, or having them lose their jobs. The problem was that the world is intolerant of those who disagree with it. And especially when they disagree with it about the ultimate issues of life, including human identity, our human nature, human sexuality, and our own destinies. In a sense, I suppose that's the unconscious tribute that the world pays to the Christian views. It recognises that they're absolute. That they're total and they require us to live in a different way and to make an absolute commitment. So, how should we respond to this desire to control us when it demands our submission? Well, let's look at the scene verses 13 to 15. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods, or worship the image or gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, You will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace, and then what God will be able to save you from my hand? Well, the first thing that we notice about these men uh, is that they didn't enter into negotiations. Uh, This was a clear cut issue for them, Uh, they didn't compromise. That you have set up. Of course, they could have offered any sort of excuse uh, for, you know, complying with this demand. Uh, For one thing, uh, their high officers in the state of Babylon uh, gave them a lot of opportunities uh, to work for the king and to do a lot of good. Hadn't Jeremiah already preached to them, seek the welfare of the city? Referring to the city in which they worked. And they could have easily justified complying with Nebuchadnezzar's direction by simply thinking, well, let's keep the peace of the city. Let's just do what he says. But they didn't. Again, they could have argued that genuflecting before the statue. Was a momentary, uh, you know, it was a momentary gesture. It really had no significance. Uh, it was totally outweighed by a lifelong of service, lifelong service to the state of Babylon. Uh, why throw everything away just because of a physical gesture? It's interesting, though, that while those kind of excuses might have gone through our minds, they don't appear to have gone through theirs because they remained uh, absolutely resolute that they would not bow down. Why? Because these people believed that we do not live by bread alone but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. It wasn't the law itself, uh, spoken by Moses, written down by the very finger of God. It was a divine word. And so these three men were steeped in scripture. They were like the man in Psalm 1. They delighted in the law of the Lord and meditated on it day and night. They followed Joshua's commands to them. You know, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but... Meditate on it and be careful to do everything written in it. For then your way shall be prosperous and you shall have good success. So the word of God was controlling their minds and their hearts. And that word told them very explicitly in the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And they knew the second commandment as well, you shall not make for yourself any graven image. Or follow any false God. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. In other words, their refusal to do what Nebuchadnezzar required them to do was based on the fact that God had spoken to them and he was both their creator and their redeemer. And so they said, O king, we will not bow down. And we will not worship, nor will we endorse what God himself has forbidden. And so here we have these three men, members of a despised race, who stand before the master conqueror of all the world. And they stand resolute, yet humble, and they refuse to comply. Isn't it interesting that 13 times through this chapter, their names are mentioned to us. Thirteen times, it's like a little refrain on a song, you know, a national song, that reminds us of the significance of what these people did and how their names ought to register in the minds of every generation of believers as people who were faithful in very hostile times. Now it's interesting that Nebuchadnezzar had never been addressed like this before by anyone else. Uh, and as they faced the threat of being burned alive, uh, they stood firm. Notice how they behaved. Uh, there were no insults. Uh, they hurled no abuse. Uh, they brought no shame on themselves. They were a model of respect and discipline as they stood on the Scriptures. Their behaviour is almost reminiscent of Martin Luther's, you know, when he stood at the the Diet of Worms and and said, my mind is captive to the word of God. Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. I wonder if you realise uh, that we're called to do the same when others try to get us to come down, as it were, into the plains of Jura and compromise our faith. You know, Jesus calls us all to make an open confession of our faith in him. And if that confession costs us, so be it. We will be true and obedient to him. Remember what he said. Jesus said, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of of his father with the holy angels. I mention this uh, because, as I said, there are ominous signs in our culture at the moment that make us think twice about confessing our faith. Bakers, wedding reception owners, Christian campsite owners, journalists, doctors, school principals, ministers in one way or another are facing increasing encroachments. And the world is putting its pressure on us and seeking to squeeze us into its mould. And these three men remind us of what we ought to do. Notice they received no reprieve, Uh, they were condemned, but notice that something quite amazing and unexpected happened. Uh, When they were thrown into the furnace, they didn't die. The guards who accompanied them to the furnace to throw them in actually perished while they were attempting to throw them in. But these three men were kept... And as Nebuchadnezzar looked into the furnace, he was amazed because he saw a fourth person. He asked the question of his servants, didn't we throw in three, why are there four? And he was struck by the fact that in the furnace uh, their bodies were not destroyed, their essential selves remained intact, and in fact they were kept by God. I think this is a reminder to us of God's promise to always be with us. Remember what Jesus said in the Great Commission, go into all the world and preach the Gospel, make confession of me, and behold, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. The writer of the Hebrews says, I will never fail you nor forsake you. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. I think this is a reminder to us of the reality that Christ will protect us and keep us in the midst of persecution. It may be that we uh, will die. Certainly Christians in other parts of the world are today. Uh, God doesn't promise that we won't die, but he does promise that he will keep us. And this picture of what took place here on this particular day is a reminder that God is with his people when they make faithful confession and that he protected both their bodies and their souls as a visible reminder to us of his grace and mercy to all who find themselves in certain circumstances. He may have saved Peter from execution by Herod, but for some reason, not only to God himself, he did not save the Apostle James. He didn't save John the Baptist from being beheaded. He didn't save Stephen the Evangelist from being stoned, nor Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna, from being bound and burnt alive. But here in this story, he reminds us that we will ultimately never perish because God, who has the power to take our lives can also keep the lives of Christians and protect them in the face of persecution. Not only their souls, but also their bodies if necessary. This fourth man undoubtedly is what theologians would call a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, who drew near to these men in their great extremities. I don't know what tests uh, any of us will face in the future but it seems to me uh, with so much persecution appearing around the world at the moment and growing signs of uh, state encroachments on our freedom in Australia at the moment uh, it's good for us to go back and refresh ourselves with those who have stood faithfully for God in days gone by to pray that uh, we would retain our freedoms, but if not, understand how we must behave and pray that all of us, uh, whenever the opportunity arises, will be faithful to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for uh, this ancient reminder of the way in which uh, you maintain and keep by your grace those who are bearing witness to you. Uh, We pray for ourselves, although we may not be in a similar situation to these men. We know that we are called upon many times to confess our faith in Christ and we pray that we may be unashamed to do so, Help us to be respectful, uh, bold and have that quiet and firm resolve within our hearts that comes from the Holy Spirit as we give uh, a gentle testimony. We pray for many Christians who find themselves in difficult situations today, are uh, threatened with legal action, Uh, faced with job loss. We ask our God uh, that if ever we find ourselves uh, in similar circumstances, uh, you would be our helper and our strength and overrule all our actions and our speech uh, for your greater glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.